The sermon tonight is from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many of you have heard about my, the interesting parts of my upbringing. So I was raised by wolves, those of you who are, who are fresh, who are here. I was raised, I was raised uh, in a crazy situation. So I was raised by hippies. And my parents uh, had, had disengaged from culture and society. My dad had converted to Buddhism. And so that, that facilitated was a relocation of the family into the middle of freaking nowhere. It was awful, as far as I can remember. Although I don't have many memories of it, really. It was... I guess in some sense it was idyllic, but we moved to nowhere. It was called Landis Stores, a little, you can't even barely find it on the map. And uh, mom and dad decided to move into a house that had no running water, no gas. Mom used to cook on a wood stove, you can believe that. In fact, I would talk to old timers when I was pastoring in the South who, had, who, who grew up getting baths in tin tubs. You ever gotten a bath in a tin tub? It does create a, an antipathy for baths. You begin to, you don't want to take a bath. You fight taking a bath because it's such an ordeal. And mom would have to cook and boil the water, and then there's no, we didn't have a water heater or anything like that. Well, that's, that, that creates a lot of good stories, a lot of fun stories to tell, right? But what were mom and dad doing? What were they, what were they acting out in that moment? Because they weren't alone. In fact, it was kind of down the, down the, down the street a little ways and down, down a long, long dirt road, a bunch of people from Philadelphia, had, they had bought land, there was this one teepee that everybody got high in, and they'd all go out in the woods and get, you know, do drugs, and I, it, was, it was wild, it was all back in the woods, and there was this interesting impulse, it was kind of a, something, it was scratching something, but, but it was this back to Eden, back to nature, get, we need to get back to the garden, you, you probably heard that song, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. And that, that, that ethos, that idea, that dream that, that, that so many hippies fed on was very real, it was very tangible. It created, it created some good memories for me. I mean, it was idyllic at some points. Yeah, I didn't go to school at all. I was, I was unschooled. I, was, I, I mean, I, I was mostly unclothed. And I just kind of ran around and did whatever I want all the time. And that created some fun memories as a kid. I remember. I had no, no supervision whatsoever. It was crazy. Back to the garden. I have two things that kind of bang around inside my head. My mom and dad didn't know Jesus in any way. My dad was Jew and who had converted to Buddhism, and my mom was a Catholic who converted with him. 
But, but, but a couple of things I was thinking about today's text. We are by nature, and this is where we're going to be focused on, we are by nature children of wrath. And that's going to lead us right into a teaching, right into an idea, right into a doctrine you may have heard of called original sin. Original sin. The sin that is our origin. That is the first way. We became sinners. Original sin. And there, there's that, but, but what I hear in my parents' search, and I saw it with all these kids, I think, was a, a desire to, to get back to the garden. And I think it's a response to the ruin of this world. I mean, there's, there's a hunger in it. I mean, look, we, 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 read about the, we read about the violence in, in, even in our schools. Well, what, what's one of the answer to that? Get away from everybody. I mean, Make your own little garden. Make your own little piece of heaven. But you know, I, 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 so uh, there's some of those ideas banging around, but I think part of the reason, though, is our origin story. This story we're going to tell today about why we are the way we are, why we are, why we are ruined, has in it the story of we weren't originally ruined to begin with. My mom and dad had no theological training but they were hungry to live in a garden free of the taint and corruption and ruin of this world. Where did that desire come from? Them? Why would they run to a garden? And I think there's something about that. There's something deep inside us that's hungry for the primeval innocence, right? We want to get back, even if we don't know the stories, even if those stories are just artifacts, even if those stories sound like myths to us. We still what? Still are hungry. There's still in us a desire something good whole complete safe beautiful joyful abundant but you know it's funny mom and dad that was the dream you can imagine that dream failed my parents it didn't work out that way at all <laughs> because wherever you go you know as the old saying is wherever you go there you are unfortunately <laughs> You bring yourself, right? You bring yourself to all these places and, and everything you are and everything you do and everything you think and everything you want and everything you hate and everything you worship. And so, well, the, the experiment, the grand, the grand event and the idyllic, you know, it just crashed and burned into nothing. Dad gets kicked out and now the family's homeless and we're living in a pickup truck, driving down the road, <laughs> grapes of wrath style. And so this, but there's something I still hear, the back to the garden and all right, I want to ask two questions then. Well, I'm answering the first question, which is, which is, how did they even know there was a garden to go to? Like, where did that instinct come from? I think, we're, I think it's in us. But the second is, why did it fail? And why will it always fail? Why does it fail? Because of sin. Original sin. And that's really what we're going to tend to focus in on in the language of Paul here in this text. You know, I... And, and so the, the, my story growing up is really a story. It's, it reflects the, all the yearnings of these stories for the garden. And I, and, I, and, I, and I see it and feel it and think it. And I can feel it around me in, 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 in my family when we were growing up. But as we take a look at this, we're going to look in particular in verse 3. This is the language we're going to look at here. Among whom we all lived, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
I, at one point, uh, Craig had asked me for a title for some of these sermons. And these sermons on sin, or like we talked about the nature of sin recently, and all the names for words for sin in the Bible. And sometimes I think these are sermons that nobody likes. These are sermons that I'm not sure that anybody wants to hear about original sin. And, and so I said, and I, last week was preaching on Satan. I hate preaching about demonic. Ugh, it's just disgusting. I, I don't even think about it. But it, it seems that we're, we're on a program that's necessary. What I mean is, is that Paul began this beautiful letter by presenting to you the beauties of Jesus and the beauties of God's love. And, and this beautiful sentence he wrote, he, 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 can't, he can't even contain his wonder, his joy, and his experience. He, he is fighting syntax. He's fighting language. Because even language can't express how much, how much in love with God he is. How marveled, he's marveling at election that, it, that occurred before time began. He, he's, he's praising God and, and he's drawing us into this. It's the whole first chapter is practically one sentence. That's how transported Paul is. In the midst of this transport, as he's describing the mercies and grace of Jesus, he says, I want to pray for something. I'm praying that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. And that you would know, you would know grace, you would know these things. Well, it's interesting, this text now, where we go right here, where we wind up in, in Ephesians chapter 2, is a continuation of that request. See, Paul knows, well, I, I can do it today, I can adore, let's say this is a cross here, we have it, we, we have it it's there for, us to point, for me to point out, but I'd say I want to adore that and adorn it. And I, and I think about that, well, there's a way to get there. There's a way to talk about grace that first examines the ruin of who we are. And in fact, I think that's what Paul's doing. He, he knows he can go on and on and on about the glories of Jesus. But until you feel the pinch of the fall, until you realize what it means, for your, what your ruin means, and your destruction means, what, what it means to be under wrath, what it means to be under sin, by nature, then, then a lot of this adoration of Jesus doesn't, I don't know, doesn't pop. It doesn't come to life. Because in the end, I don't know, we're all a little self-congratulatory, aren't we? If I tell you Jesus loves you, most people in this generation would sit there and go, well, why not? Kind of lovable, aren't I? We, we think we deserve love. So why wouldn't God love us? And, of course, these first three verses, these first three verses of Ephesians 1, they actually explore the darkness of the human condition. In fact, it's kind of funny. This, these first three or four verses here of Ephesians 1 are Romans 1 through 5. <laughs> whole five, five whole chapters of the book of Romans are dedicated to achieving and establishing the propositions of these three verses in this first chapter right here. We're going to find ourselves turning in our thoughts and our mind to Romans a little bit uh, later. All right, so we're focused here on original sin. And what, uh, the, my outline is really simple tonight, and, uh, and, and, and we should get through it fairly quickly. It's, 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 but what I want to do is I want to take a look at this idea. What is original sin? Just ask the question, what is it? What is this, what is this thing I'm talking about? Let's just see if we can describe it. And then asking yourself a follow-up question is, well, what does that mean then? Like, so, I may know why we are the way we are. We're going to look at that. But let's look at what we are then. Well, what, what, what did it create? What does it create in this room? What does it create in me? But there's a third, there's a third question. Because you see, 
original sin is, um, I'm not sure you a good word to put it. it. It sets up the possibility that you can be saved. Original sin creates uh, the precedence. It creates the, oppor- it creates the possibility in the world that things like sin and righteousness can move from one person to another person. That's very, very important. Because if that can't happen, then none of this makes any sense, right? But original sin sets something up. It sets something up in its darkness that reveals the beauty and light of Jesus in a very powerful way. Right, let's, 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 let's just dive right in. Let's dive right in. I, I, you know, I, I'm always a little bit... A little bit uh, concerned about how well we know our origin story. Do you know the first three chapters of Genesis? Do you, do you know them? Do you know the stories? Have you read them? I remember uh, um, I've heard, you will hear over the years, so many different versions of Genesis 1 through 3. I encourage you to actually do the work. You need to know these texts. You need to know what's said and what's not said. You need to know the words that are said. You need to know them because they form you. They are your origin. They're our origin story. They're going to explain things to us. And, and so, and so what, what, what are we presented with? What are we presented with in the garden? A probationary idea. So God, the story sets it up, God creates man, and we're very good. Not just good, I mean, we're very good. And he sets up humanity in, in, a, in a garden. Chapter one of Genesis is a day-by-day blow of all of the creation work. But Genesis 2, it, it is a common human narrative, it goes back to, it's, it's restating what happened in Genesis 1, but now focusing in on the particular creation of humanity, men and women. Now, when we're created, when God does create us, when humanity is created, we are immediately, well, Adam and Eve, are immediately put in a probationary test condition. It's really odd. People have thought about this. It can ruminate over for years. We're put, we're, put, we're put in this controlled environment, uh, Adam and Eve are, and, and, and they're given a tremendous abundance and they're given only one rule to live by. Only one rule to live by. You can eat of any, gar- any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You, know, you wonder, that name is so pregnant, isn't it? <laughs> the name itself is kind of like, what does that mean? What? We don't know what that means. Is it the experience of good and evil? And we're going to come like, and, and, and this is, of course, uh, Satan's going to play on this. Our origin story exists in this idyllic situation with one rule. And one of the most interesting things about this rule, by the way, is it has no moral character. It has no moral content. You, do you see what I mean by that? It's not, it is not morally, there is no moral, nothing inherently moral about whether you bite a fig or bite an apple or bite an orange. or bite, Those are not moral questions, right? So, so the challenge to not eat of the one tree is arbitrary. Why is that important? Why is it important that it's arbitrary? Why is it important that it just be this arbitrary rule without any true moral significance? Because if you obey it, you're obeying it just because God said it. It is the ultimate tribute to what? God's sovereign, kingly power. That's the press. That's the probation. And, and I think, you see, how, you see how by being such a test, it becomes, in a sense, ideal. It has an, ideal, an idealness to it. So if, if anybody falls inside this test, that is a fall that can't be blamed on anybody else. 
That's a fall that doesn't, that doesn't even make... Because there's no, there's, no, there's no inherent reason to take to, to do it. Um, this gets very hard to describe. Because none of us in this room know what it's like to have a pure mind. So we, it's very hard for us to get inside of what, what was it like to be Adam? What was it like to be in a place where I have no natural inclination <laughs> to be wicked? Where I have no propensity? I have no... Where it's, it's literally before me as a true choice. <sighs> this becomes the perfect probationary experience. This becomes the part that will unpack what real rebellion is. When the serpent comes, when Satan comes in the guise of the snake, he begins to cast doubt. Wait, you're going to become like God. Oh, he promises Eve things. He begins to, he, and, and of course, snakes are talking. I don't know why nobody's concerned about that in that initial moment. Well, what, what makes this work at this point? What makes this situation work where, uh, where, where, where they even, what makes it original sin? What, what it activates it right there? I don't really know. There's some way that God made the universe so that when Adam does that, he stands as a representative for Ted. And he stands in a federal way for Carol. And he stands with you and I, in a sense, in his loins. That's one of the ways that he expresses his scriptures uses. That, that uh, uses it about Melchizedek. When Abraham was before Melchizedek, that Jesus was there in Abraham, in a sense, because he's a son of Abraham, tithing. And there's a sense in which that there's this idea of justice that's presented in the scriptures, where, where, where Adam is both our representative and he, he's our, he is like the typical human. He is this, uh, that's what that whole situation is. is it, it sets up this ideal type of a situation. So everything becomes so ordinary. Even the rebellion is just an ordinary. It's not, it's the ideal test for whether there will be moral purity or not. It's like an ideal moral test. Because the only thing at stake is will they listen to God or not? <sighs> now, I didn't tell, I just want, didn't want to tell the whole story, but the idea here now is, is we have been now presented with original guilt. What does this mean? As a representative, and as we're in his loins, as it were, we now are inheritors, first and foremost, of something that kind of amazes us, the way the scriptures describe it. And this is it. We are not guilty because we're sinful. We are sinful because we're guilty. Guilt was pronounced over you in Adam. Guilt is applied to you through Adam. Guilt and the fact that you are guilty. Now, when I say guilty, when I say guilt has been attached to you, I don't mean anything subjective. I don't mean your feelings. I don't mean you feel guilty. I mean objective blame. And guilt and responsibility has been pre presented on your account because you are in Adam and he is your federal representative. And that is supposed to, that is supposed to, for this moment, explain to you all of the ruin that we live in today. Because out of the guilt comes what? Pollution. The constant pollution. The constant corruption, which then becomes a part 
of the constant progeny and the constant communication and the seed of Adam and the seed of his children and his children's children all the way down to my dad and me. Your dad and you. Now, two things come to mind whenever I present this. Anybody. The first, one, the first thing I think I can imagine somebody saying, how could you base your theology on what is so obviously a myth. Does anybody else have that kind of like, isn't there a part of you that kind of goes, isn't there a part of you just sitting there, sitting there going, he doesn't really believe in Adam and Eve, does he? I mean, some part of us has got to be wondering, like, well, well wait a second. Are you, willing to, are you willing to argue, Chris? Are you willing to argue for some original man and woman who are the father and mother of the entire human race? Yes, I am. Why do, I, why do I embrace the mythic here? First of all, I don't think it's mythic. <laughs> I believe that the scripture is actually a, a, a genre of literature you may not be familiar with. It's fantastical nonfiction. It is, it is the fantastic, it is, because God is one of the main characters. And the demonic and the angelic are real because they are real. And so it, it participates in a genre. And so what I'm going to say here is that I don't believe that this is a myth. And I, and I think I can make good arguments for it. But I'll go further than that. And the reason I really don't believe this is a myth is because Jesus didn't believe it was a myth. He talked about it. He owned it. He used the historical Adam as an argument for the presence of sin in the world. Was my Savior naive? Was he foolish? Did he believe in myths? Or was he a man? No! No! And no! My Savior is the Creator God. Now, that, that, that creates a tremendous confidence for me. Now, if you don't share my confidence that a God has walked the world and spoken, or that Jesus was such a person as he claimed, then you're not going to get any confidence from, what, from my confidence. But I want you to hear something here. I acknowledge that this sounds like a myth, but you don't know the world I live in. I live in a world where God is real and God is no myth. So all this stuff... Makes perfect sense to me. And sense is not even a stretch. What could be a stretch for a God in this? But the second thing, I think, is probably more powerful. You may struggle with whether Adam and Eve were mythic or not. I invite you to accept Christ's word about it. But there's another principle in play here. And that is, for a lot of us, this doesn't sound fair. Any, any, anybody anybody want to dare to put their hand up at all? Anybody, this just, just doesn't seem very fair sometimes. You know, the, the, the application of, the, of an ancient guilt to, to this room and to this generation can seem like a bit like a stretch. I mean, there's a part of you, this, is what, this would be my response. I think it's a classic American response. I didn't, I didn't vote for Adam. Right? Like, like isn't, that, isn't that a response? He didn't, I didn't choose Adam to be my representative. And so therefore, I, I have a problem with that. I, I, wanna, I, I don't like this system you're describing. I don't like it because it attributes something to me I didn't do and I refuse to accept that. Boy, I hear that kind of thing all the time. People not refusing to accept responsibility for, other, for things they think that aren't their fault, perhaps. But you can't get off that easily. You can't walk away from the judge who says, no, this is fair. This is fairness personified. And in fact, we're going to go a step further. The fact, what makes it fair that you are under judgment and, are by, and by nature, by nature, by ordinary generation, by physical nature, by having been born, by having been physically born and conceived, you are by nature now 
an object of God's anger and wrath. Oh, somebody's here. Who that is? So, so the, the, the fact that it's not fair, I mean, I, I, I can feel, I can feel us want to buckle against it. But I'm telling you that not, this teaching is so central because it guarantees not only that all of this guilt is attached to you, but the possibility of grace is attached. We're going to unpack this more. We're going to unpack this even more. But I want to, I want to, I want to grab something and pull it in here. We are by nature, by, and this by, by the way, you're going to like this. I'm teaching you Greek every week, so you'll, just so you can brag about it to your friends. Anyway, uh, this word here is phys, for physical. It's the word physis. It's, 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 it's the same word we use for physical, where we got our word physical from. Same word. It's the same word by nature. It's by, it's, it, it has the word physical in it. It's phys, phys, or physis. And, uh, and, uh, and so our, our language uh, derives our word physical from it. Now, so right here in this, in this physicality that's being described here, I want you to catch something. You see, um, this is one of those places where we begin to see a lar the larger picture of why there was a virgin birth. Why was it necessary? Why was it so essential? Why in the plan of God did we have to go to this mythic place? Because I can hear if you're worried about myth, you're going to go right there when it comes to virgin birth. But, why, but I'm telling you right now, it's not a myth. I'm telling you, I'm inviting you into it, but there's a plausibility behind it. It's not just a miracle birth story. There's a plausibility. You, you probably have already sussed it out if you have any rational ability. But you're sussing it out you're, intuitively, right? If Christ is not born of the union of a man and a woman, if he's born by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, a new possibility happens. Now, original sin no longer in play. Now, Inherited guilt and all of its pollution and corruption, no longer a factor. Witness the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You see how he's positioned there? But, I, I, but, but it gets even better than that. Because the way Christ is positioned, as the one not born of a man and woman, well, well we're, we're back in grace territory now. Because grace is all about the things you can't do that Jesus does, right? God's a perfect Savior. And he worked a salvation. He worked a salvation around original guilt and original sin and all the pollution of this world. How did he do it? How did he do it? Well, he inhabited the Virgin Mary and gave us Jesus. <laughs> that's wonderful. And, and you, I want to, the reason I'm beckoning you is, is that there's something about Christianity that's very systemic. It works together as a system. And these different parts each contribute to the other part. So you can begin to get an understanding. Original sin teaches there has to be a way out of it. There has to be a way out of it. A way to sidestep. So Christ sidesteps. God sidesteps. In the incarnation in Mary. And we see God about something. God is about something here. He is about counteracting that, that vision of the Virgin Mary. He is, about, he is about answering the problem of original guilt. And that's the way he does it. By providing somebody outside the system. You get it? Somebody completely outside. And of course, what is this? This is verse 4. This is God, this, this wonderful, eruptive, and disruptive God, right? But God... Rich in mercy. But God, rich in mercy. We sit under the accusation and guilt of, of that first probationary test. 
And it can feel unfair. And it can feel frustrating. It can make you wonder what the world's about. But tucked right inside of it, tucked right into it, with God guaranteeing that he will do something greater than what you are by nature. Praise him. <laughs> Praise him. The God who created nature <laughs> creates a way through it and around it in his son. And there's something beautifully disruptive about this grace, isn't there? There's something beautiful disruptive about such a God. All right, original sin. That's my first, my first, why we are the way we are is the, is the transmission of original guilt. But what's the fallout? We've been looking at this, and, and I encourage you to look at it. Uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And, I, and to describe, for those who weren't here, there's a picture here that's described as you were walking in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this age, and this age is following who? The prince of the power of the air. And the idea is here, we're on a, we're on a death parade, and Satan's leading the way. As just as he is in the garden, as he tempts Eve. He's leading the way, and we're following. Of course, this age is following, and we're following. And it's important we track this. This is what's going, this is part of the fallout. But the fallout of the fall is so profound. It's not just systemic. It's not just the whole system. It's not just the whole world age. It gets down to the very practical parts and pieces of who we are. Take a look. Verse 3. We among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out, and by the way, the word body here is flesh again, desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. There's a picture here, and the way Paul begins to marshal his, marshal his words here goes right back to, Romans, to, back to the, Romans, uh, the Romans chapters, where he spends whole chapters proving this point, that the corruption that you and I experience is interpersonal, personal, and mental, and emotional, and desiring. It, there's no part of you that isn't fractured and corrupted by this guilt and this pollution. You know, we like to think maybe it would be our mind. Maybe, maybe just the mind. Maybe use that picture. I, I just love it. I keep thinking about it. You know, um, we think that facts and figures can't be corrupted. But have you ever seen, a, you, ever seen a, you ever put a pencil into a bowl of water? And you ever seen what happens? What happens to the pencil when you put it in the bowl of water? What does it look like happens to the pencil? When you stick it straight down in the bowl of water? It looks like it bends. Well, we, know, we all know that the water is refracting light and bending it, turning it. That's what you do to truth. That's, we can't even take true things without taking them in and turning them into something else. The fallout is, what's, what's the word? Comprehensive and universal. There's no way to hide from it, nowhere to go, nowhere to run. Now, I, I, this is a fairly easy argument to make in the scriptures, that we're all like under sin. But I, what I want you to do is I want you to go a step further with me. <laughs> and I want you to walk into Paul's heart. So Paul has a goal, right? He wants these people to know how much they're loved by Jesus. He knows, first of all, he's got to tell them that their guilt has destroyed them. They've got to know that, hit, that, that, that love came to something unlovable, right? If you understand God's love, you've got to understand how unlovable you really are. <laughs> well, let's track that. 
Not only are you unlovable, there's like the corruption is profound. It has worked its way into your thought life, your structures, and even your reasoning can't escape, can't stand outside who you are. So what does Paul do? Because he loves these people, and he wants people to know about Jesus. Did you notice it? He uses the word we. It's really kind of pretty. It's really beautiful. Look at, look, look at what, in that verse, right in verse 4. He just suddenly switches. He says, you, you once walked, you once, and, he, and it's appropriate. As a preacher, I can point to you. I can point at you and say, thus says the Lord. I have a right to do that and by the authority of God. I have a right to declare to you. But every time I point at you, what would my mom have said to me? What is happening with these three little fingers right here? These three little fingers are pointing right back at me. You guys all got that teaching when you were kids, don't you? Didn't you? You point at somebody else, there are three fingers pointing back at you. And here we're suddenly walking into one of the glories that made Paul such an effective evangelist. He identified with the ruin of the people he's seeking to bring Jesus to. That's beautiful. Do you hear how beautiful it is? Paul never saw himself above any other sinner. This is all, this is all, he says, well, all right, so say he's, he's coming to Joyce. This is what he's going to do with Joyce. He's going to sit down next to Joyce and said, you know, we were sinners. That's wonderful. Like, you know, I know I get, I get to shake my finger at Joyce or anybody I want to when I'm up here if I want to. But, but, but I want to do here the same thing Paul's, it's we. I struggle with the ruin of my mind, my affections, and my heart every day. And it, it makes me so, it makes me want to run away from the ministry. Because I feel like I have no place to hide. I feel like my sins are going to be counted twice against me. And, and you're going to suffer because of them too. And I, I get scared. So to me, it's doubly precious that the, that the apostle says we. And for the apostle, and for everybody who really knows Jesus, it's never, I've gotten something better on you. <laughs> it's, it's, what is it? I'm a beggar. You're a beggar. I'm one beggar telling another beggar where I found bread. Come with me. Come with me to the wealth of grace in my Savior. A grace for the total corruption that I typify. I wish I didn't. <laughs> but I do. You know, I, I've even, I will say this. I've learned to praise God that he made me so weak. Because it does, it does keep me on a very, very close to him. <laughs> because I'm so afraid that I will fall without him. What a Savior, what a God. And the way that, the way that Paul owns this. I think it's beautiful. It's something actually is happening here that I think really is kind of helpful. There's no hagiography in the scripture. Let me repeat that. There's no hagiography. What's hagiography, do you ask me? Hagios is the Lord holy. Hagiography is the biography that you write when you want everybody to like you. <laughs> it's called making somebody holy. It's writing somebody into holiness. We do this with all our politicians, you know, all the books, all the, all the biographies that come out, they all tell about all the good things. Nobody ever opens up about their flaws and their, and their mistakes and their crimes and their, except, except, nobody does that except every writer of the Bible. Every writer of the Bible. Why do you know that, that Peter betrayed Christ three times? Because Peter told somebody. 
because the stuff of the gospel shines when the sons and daughters of the king tell everybody we're just as screwed up as you are. <laughs> In fact, we're often worse. We have a Savior who loves us. Ah, this is gospel, guys. This is the way gospel happens. This is why I think so often a head-on gospel presentation doesn't work with many people. A lot of times, what, what, what happens, what, what communicates the gospel is when you sit with a sinner as a sinner, right? not saying you're better than they are, not uh, pretending, not imagining, not affecting, but living. Because it's all we in this situation. You know, it's funny, uh, the, the principle of sin reminds me of the, um, the physics principle, the principle of mediocrity. Remember the principle of mediocrity? So the principle of mediocrity is this. How do we know, how do we pretend to know, even for a moment, what the universe is like 10 billion light years away from here? Do you know how we pretend to know that? We got it from Copernicus. And the idea is that everything everywhere in the universe is pretty much the same. We are mediocre. There's nothing special about us. We, we circle sun just like every other planet circles the sun. In other words, there's this idea that there's a generic nature to the Earth. There's a generic nature to our experience. There's a, in other words, things are the same. Matter is the same, and light is the same everywhere you go. It's, the principle, it's called the principle of mediocrity. The idea is there's not special rules for matter on the other side of the universe than there are here. Well, I think that's a very helpful principle when it comes to sin. Um, you, actually, I'm going to tell my wife this, and I probably shouldn't, but you can use this against me. You can use this against me. We're all the same when it comes to sin. And it, 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 it's so profound, it's not even funny. In other words, I mean, we're all the same in that many of us are struggling with deep, dark desires that we think nobody else struggles with. A lot of us, a lot of us have done and said things we think, oh, nobody else has done that. Nobody else is like me. Nobody, is, nobody has ever cursed God to his face like I have. Really? really? Do you hear the lie you're hearing there? It's, a, it's an amazing way that, that, that our enemy insinuates himself amongst the people of God. Because if you think if your spin is special, if you think you're a specially dirty woman or a dirty man, then you're going to keep quiet. Right? You're not going to say anything. Because you don't want to be embarrassed. Right? But you know what's happened to me every time I've told people just how sinful I am? I'm always amazed. Everybody else speaks about, about as ruined as I am. And here in my confession, the possibility of hope. Do you hear it in Paul? That's why he's saying it. <laughs> we, <laughs> we lived like this. We are like this. This is what we have been saved from. Original sin is our problem. <laughs> And so, you know, it's funny. So God disrupts with the Virgin Mary when it comes to original sin. And then I see him disrupting again because he turns us into sons and daughters. Did you hear what he called? It's in verse 3. The prince of the power of work who's at work amongst the sons of disobedience. And then later we're by nature children of wrath. Follow the logic here. All right, how am I going to take you, young man, and get you out of your original sin. I have an idea, says the Lord. It's called being born again. You see, we're, we're taking that concept of original sin for all it's worth, that is telling us all the truth about everything that's true today. Well, that also invites us into understanding grace. 
Because now we understand the truth of Christ's incarnation in the Virgin. And now we get why we must be born again. He says this, but God is coming in. And right here in the, verse 4 is this disruptive force of God, but God, rich in mercy, has come. To do what? Call that man a son. <laughs> He's no longer a son of disobedience, is he? You're no longer a child of wrath. You're children of God. You see, there's a logic, internal logic, an internal dynamic that we're being invited to in grace. But it even gets better. Let's go to the last point. And the last point even, it really is barely here in our text. It's there. And it's in that transition from verse 3 to verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. Because I want to ask, how does it affect me today? How does original sin or this teaching going to make a difference about how we live today? Well, because it's a total transference. Uh, see, there's another principle in play here that I just never, it's, it's all in Romans 5. By nature, children of wrath. Let me see if I can find There's There's a part of this text that kind of, that kind of almost illustrates what I'm talking about, too. Oh, when we get down to the bottom, we are his workmanship. Follow me here. Uh, so Romans 5 develops this argument. This is, the, this is the big argument of Romans, one of the biggest ones of Romans. If sin, ruin, death, destruction can come through one man, if all this junk, all this garbage, all the tragedy and travesty that we have seen can come through one man. That's heavy. Doesn't that mean that goodness can come through one man too, though? You see, you hear the logic? You hear it? It, it, it works. Because original sin is possible, then the rebirth from above that happened to Ted, that happened to me in Jesus, well, that's a how much more moment. You see? What happened through Adam is a tragedy. But, oh, the grace that is magnified so deeply because how much more has he done for me? I have done so much more in Jesus for me than Adam ever did to me. Praise God. We're in this new balance. You see, there's, new, there's a new possibility here. Because the precedence has been set in, in all of space and time that through one person can come all this death and judgment, God has said, that created the paradigm. Now my son is the one man through whom life Eternal life, heaven, salvation, cleansing, and rescue. Isn't that cool? It's a one for one. You see, God, God is building his argument. And we can hear the argument from original sin. And we've, someone's going to go, well, that's not fair. I don't know how I feel about that. I, I feel like I'm being blamed for something I didn't do. I wasn't there. It's not fair. And then you hear it. You hear it. Because it, it, it scares us. It scares us to be accused of things that we don't, know, we don't even know what we're doing. But then the blessing, the opposite is even better, though. Because before you were being blamed for things you didn't even know you did, now you're being credited with things you never even dreamed you could do in Jesus. <laughs> You've been credited with, 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 with that power that raised him from the dead, that burst the bonds of death, that reversed 14 billion years of cause and effect. And God said, no, I'm going to stop this death thing. That's the much more we have in Jesus. You see, it's kind of, it, 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 it winds up that the doctrine of original sin is more like a small channel that is carved out a small channel, and then the cross is the Grand Canyon that grew out of it. <laughs> As God, through that one course, delivers eternal life, 
He delivers rescue from death and resurrection. He delivers miracle. Oh, and rebirth. Wow. <laughs> He's a wonderful one. And, I, I, and as I was kind of thinking about this, is the gift is not like the trespass. That's from, the, that's from Romans 5, remember that? The gift is not like the trespass. Verse 1 said, you once lived and you once walked in your trespasses and sins. But we'll take a look at verse 9. We've been given a gift from God. Same language from Romans 5. The gift is not like the trespass. So much more has happened now. I, I, you know, I, 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 need, I, need, I need to be encouraged by this as much as you do. You know, before I came over, uh, I was getting ready to come. I didn't even think about it. I was working on my message, and my son's staying with me. And, and I asked him, oh, uh, Ian, are you going to come to church tonight? And he's like, oh. Uh, and he said, I was like, oh, he's not going to come. He's not going to come. I could hear that, has, yeah, that, that pause, you know, that, like, oh, uh, like, oh, gosh. And uh, then he followed it up with, well, you know, I listened to you here for 18 years. Do I have to listen to you anymore? I'm like, and I think he thinks that's funny. I don't think it's very funny. And I'm like, and I, and I, and I you know, I told Tal, I just, I just feel like I, I just feel rejected by my own son. You know, like I just, and I come to church and, you know, and, and we're just, we're, you know, it, it just feels like we're just struggling all the time. And I, I need to, mur- I need, I need to know that grace is this big. I need to know, I need to know this. I need to know this now. I need to know that, because you see, the fruit of Adam's disobedience looks so big, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you got Putin, you got the slaughter of children. I mean, Adam really did a number on us. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's no small deal. It hurts. Life hurts. Wretchedness in this, this existence sucks. But Jesus is gift is not like the trespass. (laughs) And honestly, all the suffering of man is like a little stream compared to the Grand Canyon of the torrent of his love on the cross. An eternal love that he reached down to save a child of wrath like me. And so this, this message is about hope, you see? I want to give you reasons to understand your world, understand your own sin, understand your own ruin, understand the world around you, but I want, you, I don't, I, I want to lead you to hope. Because that's what Paul's talking about this whole time. Because Paul knows for them, as he knows for you, as he knows for all humans, your brains are just too small to get how big and beautiful and loving God is. You just don't have any chance. You don't have any, you're not equipped to even capture all of it, right? And I just want more. I want a clear vision of that for you and for me. I want to know that I'm loved and I'm going to be okay, right? Even if I die, it's all right. And that's what, this, that's, what this, that's what original sin winds up really teaching. It winds up really teaching us the inner riddle of how it is God wants to bless and love the world through his son Jesus and his grace. Praise him. Let's pray. Father, I bring my heart to you. I, I uh, Honestly, Adam's sin just feels like it just ruined everything sometimes. And uh, 
I don't know how he feels about it. I imagine he's more than a little ashamed of himself at times. I guess in your glory, you protect him from that. But Father, uh, please remember what we have to live with here, how hard it is for us. This, this death march of, of your enemy and our enemy and the course of this age and, and, the, and the, 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 the living dead of this generation. I, I don't. I, 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 I'm so powerless before it, Father. I, but, but that's that's the point here. I, you promise so much grace. Would you show us and reveal to us and through us and in us and to us again, grace? Just how how amazing your love is. Renew our hope. Don't let us be discouraged. Don't let us be discouraged by people not caring about you or about. Even the course of the curse in our own families. I turn to you. I turn to you now. I turn to you for my son. I turn to you for this generation. I turn to you with my own heart in our church. Father, will you just take care of us right now? And will you reveal in a way that none of us can deny? Will you reveal in a special, wonderful way? Open the eyes of our hearts. So we are bowled over again by the love, your love, and your grace. Would you give us that tonight, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.